Uh, welcome. It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us online. It's great to see you. I don't know if you realize this or not. I'm sure you uh, have. Uh, but today uh, is the one-year anniversary of our church uh, having to move into a garage and live stream from the Noel's garage because of COVID. So we made it a year. Good job. Uh, amazing job. We've all survived this past year. Yeah, I'll give a big round of applause for that. Um, so I was just thinking about this past year, and while it's been a lot of hardships, it's really been amazing, right? Um, that God has taken uh, some college students and some young adults and some families with kids and some older folks, a lot of us who didn't even know each other before, just thrown us all together as really a beautiful picture of God's kingdom. And so I'm really excited what God's done in the life of our church over the past year, and I hope you are too. All right, we're continuing our series through the book of Titus. Uh, the series is called Every Good Work. Uh, we're going to talk about good work towards the end today. So if you're listening for that, just hold on. So Titus chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Uh, so it was a time in my life where um, I gave blood pretty regularly. So in college, anytime there was a blood drive on campus, which was like every four days, uh, I would go and give blood. Uh, mainly because I like the snacks, right? I mean, who doesn't love some juice and crackers after you give blood? It's like the greatest experience ever. You're like, hey, I got to help someone and I got to like kind of indulge in being a kid again. A little juice, little crackers, a lot of fun. Um, and I prided myself on the fact that um, I never never passed out, right? Other people say, oh, I don't get blood. Like, I don't like needles. Sometimes I feel a little woozy afterwards. I was like, no, not me. I'm a man. I just walk in there. They steal my blood and I'm good. I just walk right out. I don't need help. I don't need attention. I don't need anybody to check on me. Like, that's the way it works. Until this one particular time. And I don't know if it was because of something I ate or what I didn't eat or just maybe I was dehydrated or maybe I was just not as manly as I thought I was, uh, but I was giving blood and I remember the nurse saying, honey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, fine, totally fine while there's darkness creeping in at the edges of my eyeballs. You ever been in that situation? Just darkness creeping in. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I imagine it sounded totally ridiculous to her. In my brain, it sounded very confident, like backup woman, I got this, right? But, but I imagine in, my, in actuality, it was kind of like, no, I'm fine, right? It's kind of the way it came out. Because immediately, all of a sudden, every sense that I have was alert to everything happening in the room. That nurse had whipped out that smelling salt, put it right in front of my nose, and it was like, like colors were brighter, right? There's this burning sensation. I could see everything clear. Like I was, the cobwebs were just rattled right out of my head. I was immediately awake to my surroundings. And I looked at her and I said, I, I passed out, didn't I? She's like, oh yeah, you totally passed out. You know, Mr. Tough Guy, like passed out. The reason I tell you that story is because today as we dive into Titus chapter 2, this passage was a similar experience for me in about 2008 and 2009. At the time, I was a youth pastor, and I was shocked. The more I got to know my students, the more I realized they did not know the gospel, that Jesus rescues sinners by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And even more troubling than that was this idea that they didn't see how that came to bear in their lives. 
that this Christianity that they had grown up with, that they were operating in, was just simply about maintaining certain appearances or behaviors. And so for me, this is, uh, I, you know, 12 years ago, I went through this process of trying to tear everything apart and see why was this the version of Christianity that was seeping into the hearts and lives of my students. It was a, an awakening. So let's jump in, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So what Paul says, remember to Titus, who's his co-worker sent to pastor this very troubled church on the island of Crete. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now remember the context we talked about last week. Titus is repairing what's been broken in the church. Things have gotten very unhealthy. And last week, the strategy, remember, was for people to invest in people. Find, Paul's telling them, some really good godly men and women who can repair this network of relationships and create a new community where together this church starts to look more and more like the church of Jesus. Now, the problem with last week is it doesn't really address the how, right? Because you can get people together in relationship. Everybody can have a really good time and everybody can know each other well, but you never get to the part where, oh, how are we growing like Jesus? This is what this passage is answering. First, he says, for the grace of God appeared. Now, God's grace is God's unmerited favor. It's when God initiates a relationship with someone, not based on if they deserved it or earned it or anything they bring to the table, but God initiates a relationship even when it's undeserved. So God's grace, Paul says, has appeared. Now he's talking about Jesus, that Jesus came on the scene and just like smelling salts to someone on the verge of being unconscious, Jesus on the scene awakens everybody to God's grace. That God is in the business of initiating a relationship. That God is in the business of loving unconditionally even those who are far from him. That Jesus came in grace. And this grace, the next phrase, is bringing salvation for all people. Now that's expected. There's no shock here. We've all heard this. We've all sung the song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what we would expect, that God in his grace is saving people. And all sorts of people, right? All people. And so that this work of God's grace in Jesus is available for everyone regardless of race or gender or background or family, even past behaviors and attitudes. But it's the next phrase that's shocking. Where he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. And you go, Brian, what's the big deal? I've heard this before. 
right? That renounce means to say no. And so as a follower of Jesus, I say no to certain things. I should say no to godliness, which is really just a lack of concern for God. That in my extreme selfishness, I don't consider God or weigh what God would think about any subject in my life. Instead, I just do whatever I want. That's ungodliness. I should say no to that. It's not shocking that I'm told to say no to worldly passions, these desires that come inside of me, these impulses to chase after what I want when I want it. That's not a surprise. That's not a shock. It's not a shock that I'm commanded to say yes to some things, to live self-controlled, not chasing after every impulse of my heart, to be characterized by uprightness. In other words, that I'm known to be a person who's in a right relationship with God and other people. I treat people fairly and with respect. And it's not a shock that the expectation is that I'm godly. It was what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. God-centered is the way to understand that. That my life revolves around who God is. My decision-making revolves around who God is. None of this is a shock. What's the, what's the shock? The shock is we often miss what this verb training is attached to. So the word training means to instruct, like a father would instruct a child or a mother would instruct a child or a teacher would instruct a child. And that training or instruction is tied to God's grace appearing. You see, what I had missed for years and what so many of us miss when we come to the scripture is that there is an alternative way to see our obedience to Jesus from the way that we have experienced. There's something else besides just behavior modification or trying to seem in the right or keeping up appearances. It is realizing that the instruction for how to live godly, Jesus-centered lives comes from God's grace. His grace, his undeserved favor. And Paul's saying it's grace that trains us. It's grace, the message of the gospel, that we are more broken than we could ever imagine, yet more loved by God than we could ever imagine. This message that God extends forgiveness and friendship to sinners like us. This idea that anybody can get in on this, this gospel message, Paul says, is what trains us shows us, instructs us how to say no to selfishness and how to say yes to being God-centered. We could say it this way. The way we grow as followers of Jesus, sometimes we call that discipleship, the way we grow as followers of Jesus is the same way we became followers of Jesus, the gospel. The way we grow as followers of Jesus is the same way that we became followers of Jesus, the gospel. The way we learn to say no to extreme selfishness in our own hearts and lives is not by making much of our own effort. It's not by taking great pride in our own moral perfections or gains, but is in making much of Jesus. Jesus's effort. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, what he's done for us in our place. See, grace trains us to say no because it replaces what we say no to with something better. An invitation to be a part of a loving relationship with God. We learn to say yes to God-centered living. 
Jesus-resembling lives because we fall in love with Jesus. Because we grow to understand that he loved us first, that he chased us down in the middle of our sinfulness and brokenness and desperation, that he found us when we were far from him. That's grace. And that's the way Paul is saying we learn to live Jesus-shaped lives. Tim Keller says this, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like a hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. This is what was missing from my student ministry. This is what was missing from my church. This is what's missing from most churches and most of our lives. My students thought the gospel how wasn't relevant because they hadn't needed it since vacation Bible school. You remember that vacation Bible school? Any, any church kids in here? I'm a church kid, all right? You go to VBS and they explain the gospel, right? A, admit to God that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. C, confess, right? You, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you didn't grow up around churches like, bro, I'm so confused. I did not realize that I was a part of a cult, right? Like, let's slow this thing down a little bit. I understand, right? But the reason most of us don't see the gospel's relevance in our lives is because we haven't needed it since then. But what Paul is pointing out to us here is, no, 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 don't miss this. It's not going to be your strategy of church development. It's not going to be the way you get all these people together in community. That's a vehicle. But what you need is God's grace to train their hearts. You need something bigger than just a great strategy. This is why a how-to list never works with students. It doesn't work with you either. This is why pleading with people about the consequences of their negative actions never works. This is why appeals to people about their witness in the community doesn't work because there's no power in it. No affections are being changed. No love is growing. No relationship is being bonded together between you and Jesus. There's no grace in it. And so instead what happens most of the time when we teach the Bible is you get a list of things to do but not an explanation of where the power to do those things come from. It's kind of like being on a ship where someone ties the anchor around your foot, explains to you how to be a great captain of the ship, and then boots you off the edge as you plummet to a watery grave. There's no power in it but this grace idea that God has initiated a relationship with you. That the rules aren't about trying to earn his acceptance, but instead ways to help you understand how to live in relationship with God. Now that changes everything. What we have is two alternatives to this sort of understanding. Here's the first one. This first one is why many of you guys aren't Christians. The first one is why you've rejected this. The first alternative is legalism. Now, Legalism is the religious rule keeper. 
Legalism is the tendency in all of our hearts, we all have a little bit of this, no matter, no matter what we're like, to measure our worth by how well we perform. We like to keep the rules. Those rules give us a gauge on how good we are. It's driven by impressing God. Jonathan Dotson said, legalism is this idea. If I perform well, then God will accept me. Legalism doesn't teach that grace is what trains you in righteousness or disciples you. Legalism teaches you that the law teaches you this. That if you follow the rules, then you're going to be good with God. If you don't, then that's a problem. What the legalist says is, give me the rules. I want them all. I'm gonna make sure I follow everyone, I check every box. I will renounce, I will say no to everything. If all T-Pain does is win, 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 then all the legalist does is say no, no, no. Got it down. But the lie at the bottom of legalism is this one. God's love for me is conditional. If you struggle with being a religious rule keeper, the lie at the bottom of that barrel is this belief. God's love for me is conditional. And if I don't do everything that's required, he's going to leave. Now, some of us grew up in legalistic churches and so we got a different response to that. We decided to do something different. We didn't like legalism, so we pursued alternative two, license. License is the person who says, who is the rebellious rule breaker. It's the tendency, we all have this inside of our hearts to find meaning from freedom from the rules. The rebellious rule breaker is trying to avoid God. Jonathan Dotson defines it this way, because God has forgiven me, I'm free to disobey. You've heard this one before? I'm free in Christ. I don't need any of the rules. I don't need any of the regulations. Hey, bro, back up. You're just giving me law, 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 law. I don't want it. I do what I want. I teach myself. I chart my own path. I don't need any sort of guidance. And I certainly don't need instructions from a bunch of dead dudes written down in a book from 2,000 years ago. I got it. I'm free to find my happiness and meaning by discovering my true self. And now I'm forgiven, I'm on good terms with God, so I'm just gonna do whatever I want. The lie behind license is also a lie of love. That love is only love if it makes much of me. Remember, the religious rule follower says God's love is conditional based on my performance. The uh, rebellious rule breaker says Love is only meaningful if it's making much of me. If it's giving me what I desire when I desire it. If I get to live how I want, this is the delusion of our age. Unfortunately, many of us and many people in our culture experience legalistic churches growing up or a legalistic culture, even if we didn't go to church. And the reaction against it is to reject all of it and set ourselves at the center of the system. Love's not love unless it's making much of me. So I don't want a love that tells me the truth. I don't want a love that is not hidden from me if it's hard. Can you imagine parenting kids like this? Right? 
This doesn't make any sort of sense in parenting kids. Right? Mothers give their children riverbanks, guardrails, because they love them. And while we see it clearly in the family, we reject it in every other area of my life, right? I want complete freedom. If I don't have complete freedom to be who I really am, then you don't love me. It's the lie behind license. All right. Here's the thing. These two positions are not radically different. In fact, they're just two versions of the same thing. You know what the same thing is? I'm in the middle of it. I'm the ultimate decision maker. I'm the determiner of truth. This whole thing is either built on my ability to follow the rules or my ability to chart my own path. And guess what? This is a new. In fact, this is the point of Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Maybe you remember it. I'm going to guarantee you that a lot of people think you know it, but you hadn't read it. So let me give you a little synopsis. Dr. Jekyll decides that he has two distinct sides of him, a good side and a bad side. He wants the good side, but he doesn't know what to do with the bad side. So you know what he does? He creates this potion. You remember this from the story? The potion can separate his goodness in Dr. Jekyll from his badness in Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde is licensed. He gets to go do and live however he wants to live without the fear of consequences of being found out. Jekyll, on the other hand, is legalism. He gets to live completely knowing that other people think he's an upstanding citizen. Here's what happens in the book. You remember this? First, it's by a potion that he's able to split and become Hyde. And then it starts to happen while he's sleeping. While he's not conscious, he suddenly starts to transform into Mr. Hyde. And he will wake up places not understanding or knowing what he's done. And in the book, he he figures out just for a little while kind of how to get control of it. And then in an interesting twist... One day, Jekyll is admiring how well he controls Hyde. He starts to admire his own goodness. And he starts to, in the middle of the day, become Mr. Hyde. Here's the way Stevenson says it. He says, after all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. Then I smiled. Comparing myself with other men, comparing my act of good will with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then as in its turn, faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. You see, the way to becoming the monster of Mr. Hyde was not just a lack of self-control or license, of chasing after every desire and allowing evil desire to run rampant in his heart, but it was also the self-centered comparison to other people of a belief that he was better than others, that he deserved something that other people didn't because of his own goodness. The pride of legalism leads us away from the gospel in the heart of God, just like the self-centeredness of license. Because at the center is a pride of self. And what Stevenson is trying to show us is there's two ways to become the monster hide. 
self-indulgence, but also self-justification. License and legalism, but there's another way. And this other way is what Paul is describing in the text, this way of gospel-centered discipleship, this way of grace. Jonathan Dotson says, the gospel steeps our hearts in a new motivation of grace, which neither flaunts disobedience nor feigns obedience. Grace gives us a new identity, not a set of rules. We all, he says, need grace. We all need to be continually awakened to the beauty and the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of his grace, which will in turn compel Christ's beholding obedience. Here's what Dotson just said. There's, you can fake obedience and make everybody think you're awesome. You could flaunt disobedience and make everybody think you're free. But what grace does is invites you into a relationship where you belong. But how? Like, Brandon, we talked a lot. You haven't answered the how question. Two weeks. You have not answered the how question for me yet. Let's look at the next verse. Here's what he says. The how is looking to Jesus. Paul says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. He's saying our posture is we're looking not to ourselves, but to Jesus. He's coming back in glory when we will all see how glorious his grace is. And right now, my eyes are fixed on that is my hope. Fixed on Jesus, not my ability to chart my own path, to maximize my freedom, or not in my own rule follow. J.C. Ryle, hundreds of years ago, said the same thing. If we would be sanctified, the word sanctified is just a churchy word. It means be more like Jesus. Our course, he says, is clear and plain. We must begin with Christ. We must go to him as sinners with no plea, but that of utter need and cast our souls on him by faith. If we would grow in holiness and become more sanctified, we must continually go on as we began and be ever making fresh applications to Christ. Now, why Jesus why is he the object of our hope? Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? This is verse 14. Because Jesus is the one who Paul says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what he says. We look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one that gave his life for us. Jesus died for you. And for the legalists, in here has a tendency to rule following. Jesus died for you means you need it. That your rule following is not enough. For the person who practices license in here, Jesus died for you, gave himself up for you, should push back against this faulty idea that it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. God wanted a relationship with you so much that he sent his own son to die for you in your place. That's massive. And then he says that Jesus came to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus came to redeem, that word means to restore. God has a purpose for your life. This purpose you have been redeemed for, it is bigger than license. That's what he says. Redeemed you from lawlessness. God has a purpose for you bigger than your own pursuit of freedom and meaning and happiness by doing whatever you want. Bigger than that. And it's so big for the legalist, you can't get it by earning it. You need God to give it to you. 
to redeem you, restore you. God is not done with you, whatever camp you're in. And then he says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You belong to God if you are a believer in Jesus. You're not your own. This means that the context for discipleship when it's gospel-centered is relationship, not rules. Not rules to keep or rules to break. And this good work of Jesus starts to shape us. It's the next phrase, zealous for good works. Was he pointing out here why are these things connected? They're connected because my good works are a result of Jesus' good work. My zealousness for good comes from the fact that Jesus' good work is for me in my place. And so I become a person that loves justice because Jesus loves justice. And that God had made sure justice was served on the cross. He didn't look over it. He didn't minimize it. But made sure justice was served. So as Jesus' good work shapes my good work, I begin to love mercy. Why? Because God was merciful for me, to me in Jesus. Because on the cross, not only did God serve justice, but then he extended mercy. That Jesus absorbed the judgment that you and I deserved because of his mercy. And so I become a person then that loves grace. And I want to treat people with grace and love and compassion. Why? Because I know I stumbled into this relationship with Jesus that I didn't earn or deserve, but God gave it to me freely. You see, what happens when the gospel is at the center of our discipleship is we're no longer checking boxes of rules, even though we understand these rules help us to know how to relate to God. And we're no longer rejecting all of the rules Instead, we're walking in a relationship, and it's this relationship that starts to shape who we are. The way we grow as followers of Jesus is the same way we became followers of Jesus, the gospel. Some of y'all, some of you guys online, you're going to another church service today in search of something deeper. A new teaching something radical you can jump on. Somebody's gonna show you a word in some text and build some sort of theological system out of it. And you're like, this is going to be the thing. Here's the thing, it's the gospel. That's the thing. That from Genesis chapter one, all the way to Revelation, the center point of the entire scripture is this story. That you are more broken than you could ever possibly imagine. And yet you are more loved by God than you could ever possibly imagine. And he made a way out of his love to change your broken state and to bring you into friendship and relationship with him. And here's the best part. Anybody can get in on it. It's free. It's based on grace. The mystery that the Bible talks about, Paul talks about this mystery all the way through his letters. But he says the mystery is not hidden, now it's revealed. The mystery in the Old Testament was that Jesus was coming. That's what people didn't know. Now everybody knows that's the depths. Jesus came to rescue sinners like us. 
So it's grace that trains me to think about God more and think about myself less. I'm not worried about my rules or how I'm gonna break the rules. I've been extended grace and I'm thankful. It's grace that trains me to focus my affections on God more and less on myself. It's grace that teaches me to choose God's way more and choose my way less. It is the fuel, the motivation, and the heart of this whole thing of following Jesus. How does this work in my life? I think there's two things that we all have to do. Community is important because it works best in community. This is the way it ties to last week. The first one is heart exposure. What we need is heart exposure. See, often what we do is instead of diagnosing what's happening in our hearts, we just try to solve the symptoms. We have a deep, dark infection, and all we're doing is taking Advil for the fever. But what we need to do is dig below the surface. We need to ask ourselves, why do I drink too much? Not just, man, I drank too much again. I got to change. Why do I do that? We got to ask ourselves, why do I lash out at my kids? Why? Why do I experience this anger at a heart level? We've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. Why do I lie at work? What is it about my boss that makes me want to not tell him the truth? And when we diagnose what's going on in the heart, we find the reason I drink too much is because I really need the guys at the bar to think I'm cool. I'm 40 years old, and I still want these losers to think that I'm cool. I need acceptance. The reason I lash out on my kids is because I feel out of control, and I need to be in control in somewhere in my life. The reason that I lie is because I want to look good. My appearance matters to me. And then once we diagnose the heart, then we apply step two, the gospel. Asking ourselves this question, how does the gospel answer this issue at the heart of who I am? For those of us struggling with acceptance, the gospel says, you've already been accepted. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself. God already loves you. You already belong to the family. For those of us who are struggling with feeling out of control, the gospel says, hey, hey you're not in control. God's in control. And in fact, we know that because of the gospel, because from the beginning to the end, he orchestrated this whole thing so that you would come to know Christ in control. When we feel as though we have to keep up appearances, the gospel says, what are you keeping up appearances for, man? You already told everybody you're broken to the very center of who you are. That's what it means to be a Christian. You think now's the time to hide that? No, man, rejoice in grace. Rejoice that you've been forgiven. You don't have to hide that. This gospel application is the step that we most often don't take. This is why your Bible reading doesn't make sense. That's why I could read the Bible for years and years and years and not be any different. Because you're learning things about Jesus, but you're not asking the hard questions about yourself your own heart, and then taking what we know to be true, the gospel, and applying it to our hearts. This is why people can come in here preaching for years and years and years and years and years and still be devils. You can come in here preaching and be just as legalistic 
or just as involved in license. Preaching is important in the life of the church. Man, I love doing it. But what makes a difference in our lives is gospel application. When we see what's driving us and we see how the gospel answers it. This is why our church exists. This is why we don't do a lot of like four steps to a better you. This is why we have Bibles open. This is why we believe Jesus is at the center of it all. Because the only hope for you and the only hope for me is a gospel-centered discipleship. The only hope for change at a heart affection level for you and for me is grace. I love this story about C.S. Lewis. I don't know if it's true, but I love it. Someone tell it like it's true. He's got some buddies. The Inklings are all having an argument about what makes Christianity unique. There's all sorts of things they're talking about. It's the Trinity or whatever else. C.S. Lewis walks in the room. His friends called him Jack. And they say, Jack, what do you think? What makes Christianity unique? C.S. Lewis says, grace. That's what makes it unique. And for me in my life, can I be really honest with you? There are sometimes I read Genesis chapter one and chapter two. So like garden, man, woman, some serpent derails the whole thing in chapter three. And I go, is this for real? Can I be honest with you? Like, is this for real? But what keeps drawing me back is grace. There's nothing like this. There's no one like Jesus. Nothing. No religious system, no secular worldview is like this on the face of the planet. That you get what Jesus deserved. Friendship, love from God. And he took what you deserved. Nothing like it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much to, for your grace to us. May this be for us the center of everything. God, would you help some of us in here who are legalists at heart, who are constantly judging our relationship with you by how well we follow certain rules. God, could we just see the gospel? And God, could we be overwhelmed by your undeserved invitation into relationship? Could we not continue to modify our behavior to try to please you, but could you help us do the hard question? Why do I do this? And then could we ask, how's the gospel apply to it? Father, for those of us who because of maybe a legalistic background or because of maybe just the tenor of our own hearts, we pursue license. We want to know we're going to be good at the end, but we want to do whatever we want in the meantime. Father, could you see, could we see just in this text, that beautiful phrase, this present age, that you have something for us here and now that's infinitely better from the meaning and happiness we're chasing after. 
is a better way, the way of grace, the way of the gospel. Father, for those of us in here, maybe watching online, who've never heard this before, this idea of grace associated with the church is just incredibly shocking. Father, for that person who just believes that this church is about showing up and doing the ritual and doing the routine and then going and doing your own thing, and so there's never been any draw, God, could you fill their hearts with this amazing, beautiful picture of grace? Could they feel the draw to relationship with you through your son, Jesus? God, today, could we be a church of people who don't fall into any ditch Can we just reject legalism? God is in our hearts. Help us fight against it. Can we reject license? God is in every single one of our hearts. Could we fight against it and walk in the way of grace? Pray this in the name of Jesus.